It is, uh, it's great to see everybody here today, whether you are um, joining us here or you're joining us online, we're, we're glad you're here. Um, we have been, we've been going through a sermon series on the, uh, the, first, the first half of Exodus, the book of Exodus, and uh, we're, gonna, we're continuing that today. And if you haven't been with us for this, for this trek, let me, let me just sum it up like this. For the past 400 years, Israel has been held in slavery in Egypt. But the time has come for them to be set free. And in, in this process, God has he's unleashed a set of nine plagues on Egypt in an effort to force Pharaoh to let Israel go. And today, we're going to get we're going to get to that 10th and final plague and spoiler alert. Um, this this plague is so brutal that that Pharaoh lets Israel go. This this 10th plague is it is the plague to end all plagues. But for the Christian today, this this story is it's more than a story about a group of people who lived thousands of years ago. Instead, this is a very personal story for us. This is this is our story. It's a story of redemption. It's a story of God liberating people from 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 bondage and not just not just physical bondage, but from spiritual um, bondage. You know, every time we every time we we see um, God call Moses to tell him to go to speak to Pharaoh uh, during the, during these plagues, he, he tells, he tells Moses to tell Pharaoh kind of one common thing. He, he tells him, he says, let my people go that they may serve me. And, you know, we, we think about this and that, you know, God, he's not calling for Pharaoh to let the Israelites go so they can, so they can move uh, to the land that he had promised them, the promised land, and and just really just live their best life now. No, he's he's calling for their release so that they can worship him fully and freely. What does that mean? What does that mean to worship God fully and freely? I mean, we know that there are believers all around the world today who who live in in countries um, where they aren't able to freely worship God. Um, they are, they're persecuted for their faith, but, but that doesn't, that, that persecution doesn't stop them or keep them from, from worship. In fact, we know that, that where persecution is greatest, the church is absolutely thriving. And we, we see that. So let me, let me give you a, an example, a recent example, even in here in our own country, you you may have heard about the, the controversy surrounding John MacArthur's church in California over the past uh, couple of weeks. And I, I'm sure we have we all have opinions on you know, the government's role in, in capping church attendance in California to, to 100 attendees and and, uh, you know, their ban and on singing in church or or even MacArthur's open letter to his to his church. I'm not going to go there. We're not going to talk about that. Instead, what what I'm going to talk about is is the people in MacArthur's church and their desire to worship. I heard an interview with, with John MacArthur where um, he said that, that he did what every other pastor in America did during this quarantine, right? When America basically shut down, um, he did what we did at New City Church where, where we would stand in an empty room and, um, and deliver a sermon to a camera that would be sent out over the internet in various ways. And uh, he, he did the same thing. So MacArthur would stand um, in, in their auditorium, which seats 3,000 people. And it was, it was him 
in the camera crew. And he did this week after week where he would, would record sermons and they would, be, they would be sent out. All of a sudden, during this quarantine, during their, their you know, cap on church attendance, people started showing up. They didn't, they didn't send out an email, come if you'd like to come or anything like that. The church didn't do any of that. They just, people just started showing up. Few people became tens of people, became hundreds of people. And, and then this past weekend, thousands of people showed up. Hey, this, you think about it, worship, worship of, of God is not, it's not a right granted by the government. Yes, there are governments that, that try and limit or eliminate worship, but, you know, but the true believer is going to worship because they have an innate desire to worship God. They, they have this desire because they have been, they have been set free spiritually to, to do so. I mean, that sounds kind of strange. We'll, we'll talk about it as we go through this, go through this time together today. And, and, uh, but that, that leads us to our, to our main idea today, right? So main idea, we are free to worship the Lord. We are free to worship the Lord. So here's, here's a roadmap of, uh, of where we're going to go in our time together today. Um, we have a lot of scripture to read. So we're going to start in Exodus chapter 11 and verse 1. We're going to go all the way through Exodus chapter 12, uh, verse 32. So it's a, it's a big chunk of scripture, um, but God's word is good. And I am excited to be able to read all the way through that today. We're going to read all the way through it. And then once we get done, we're going we're gonna to kind of break it down with three points. And so um, here are the three points, just if, if you want to write them down. Point one, God is worthy of our worship. Point two, man naturally rejects proper worship. And then point three, Jesus frees us to worship. All right. So here we go. Exodus chapter 11, verse 1, open your Bible, you can, you can read there, we, we'll have it on the screen, you can follow along here. So, Exodus 11, uh, verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the, he, in the, in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. So Moses said, thus, the, thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these, your servants, shall, shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you. 
that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he did not let the people go, people of Israel go out of his land. So let me stop there. Take a little break. I mean, this is the end of chapter 11. Uh, we'll start chapter 12 in, in just a second, but just to, just real quickly, kind of a recap here. I mean, this is, this is uh, Moses going in to speak to Pharaoh and they've had nine plagues. This is the 10th. And he's saying, Pharaoh, here's what's going to happen if you do not let Israel go, if you not set us free. Every firstborn male in, in Egypt is, is going to die. Pharaoh, don't believe you. It's not going to happen. He, he does not let the people of Israel go. So then we start up with uh, chapter 12. Chapter 12, verse 1 says, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your, your count uh, for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month. And when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their, their lambs at twilight, then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the, of the houses in which they eat. They shall eat the flesh that night roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night and will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be assigned for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread on the first day, you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day, you shall hold a holy assembly. And on the seventh day, a holy assembly. No work shall be done on these days. But, but what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. And you shall observe the feast of, the, of unleavened bread. For on this very day, I brought your host out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month, from the 14th day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. For those days, no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing leavened. In all your dwelling places, you shall eat unleavened bread. Then Moses called the elders of Israel and said to them, go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and, and touch the, the lintel and the two doorposts. 
with the blood that is, that is in the basin, none of you shall go out of the door of, of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and, the, and, and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this right as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses and the people bowed their heads and worshiped. Then the people of Israel went and did so as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. So they did. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night and he and and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel and go serve the Lord. As you have said, take your flocks and your herds, as you have said, and be gone and bless me also. You know, no matter, no matter how you slice it, this is a difficult text of all the plagues. This one has to be the hardest to comprehend. Every firstborn in Egypt was going to die. And, and this, you know, we think about this and it just, it makes us think, it makes us ask the question, why? Why would God do such a thing? Not only does this not seem right, but it, it doesn't even seem necessary. You know, we, we read this and, you know, we, we may think to ourselves, you know, does, does God even care about life if he's willing to just take it? In this way, God's word is good. Scripture is good. He gives us answers to, to questions like these. And in, in Ezekiel chapter 33, 11, he says, Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. God takes no pleasure in what was happening to the Egyptians. And you know, verses like these, they're, they're critical, though, for us. This verse in, in Ezekiel, it's critical for us because it, it shows us God's character. They, they show us that he cares for us. You know, we, we read verses like this, and, and, and it, it kind of makes us think back to Exodus 3, which we've studied in, in past weeks here. If we, we think back to, to Exodus chapter 3, when, when Moses was asking God, you know, who he should say sent him when the people of Israel ask. And God says, tell them, I am, has sent you. The Lord has sent you. He is the great I am. The Lord, Yahweh, who cares so deeply for his creation. Yahweh was the covenant name for God. Just mean, it meant that he cared for his people. This is why we, this is why we see the, the name Yahweh used for God over 6,000 times in the Old Testament. He cares for his, for his people. And then maybe more you know, important for our passage today, verses like this, they, they show us that, that God is God and we are not. He is Elohim, creator, sustainer, supreme judge, 
of the world. And, and because he is, point one, he is worthy of our worship. God is worthy of our worship. Here's the deal. You know, we, we like to think that, that we are in control of our lives. We're not. You know, you, some of you guys know, I'm sure a lot of you guys know that I'm, I'm bivocational, which is just a fancy way of saying that I have another job. And um, it's a corporate job with, with, a large, uh, with a large company. And, you know, every, every year our company comes out with a, a really, you know, well-intentioned slogan to help set the tone for the year. They usually roll it out at our, our national sales conference in January. And it's just meant to get everybody kind of pumped up for, for the year. And, you know, let's, let's go do this, right? And a few years back, we're, we're sitting at our company-wide conference in January and, and they, they unveiled the slogan for that year, you're in charge, you're in charge. Now, you know, when you, when you, go, to, um, when you go to conferences like this, right? You, you learn a lot of great stuff. And then, um, and then you leave and typically it takes people about two weeks to forget everything that they just heard and go back to their old bad habits, right? It was immediate for me. So when I, when I heard that, as soon as I heard that, that slogan, you're in charge, I just thought to myself, nope. I, nothing I heard after that even resonate, resonated because we are not in charge. I mean, one of the things that the Bible makes very clear is that we are not in control. It's, it's God who created the universe and everything in it, not us. It's God who gives us our next breath. It's God who makes our heart beat the next time. And it will be God who causes our heart to beat for the final time. He is sovereign over it all. And because he is, he is worthy of our worship. So when we look at this text and, you know, we, in this text, we see an immense amount of pain, but we also see joy. We, we see, we see pain because, you know, these Egyptian families, they were, they were going to lose the lives of their children. We, we look back at verses four through six and in chapter 11, it says, so Moses said, thus says the Lord about midnight, I will go out in the midst of Egypt and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on the, on the throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. And you know, as, as Christians, we, we should mourn the, the loss of every life. But make no mistake, every Egyptian was responsible for this calamity that was coming upon them. This, this destruction to come, would, it would extend from, from the slave all the way to the, to the son of Pharaoh who was to, to one day assume the throne. And so you, you think about that and the, you know, the slave was not too low. The son of Pharaoh was not too high for this, not to, not to suffer this fate. The people, the people were responsible for their depravity, but it was Pharaoh, you know, who received this, this final warning in chapter 11 of what was to come. It was Pharaoh whose pride prevented him from saving the sons of Egypt. It was Pharaoh who failed to lead his people in righteousness. The Egyptians, would, they, would, they would suffer this fate. 
not only because they've prevented Israel from worshiping God, but they themselves didn't worship God. I mean, they, they worshiped just about everything except the one who should have been the object of their worship. So we have, we have pain and then we, we see joy in this text because, because God is ushering in. What he's ushering in is setting the stage for the redemption of all mankind. What God was ushering in would be, would be worship that wouldn't be limited by, by what country you live in or if you were free or slave or anything else. Listen, I, God takes no pleasure. He takes no pleasure in what was happening here. He's taken this action because, point two, man naturally rejects proper worship. Point two, man naturally rejects proper worship. And we've talked a lot about the Egyptians and we've kind of picked on them a little bit um, with this. So, so I want to talk about the Israelites here. I mean, did you notice that, that almost all of what we read in chapter 12, there were instructions for Israel? Not just instructions to, to escape God's wrath during this first Passover, but, but instructions to remind future generations of what God did for them. That's, that's what verses 14 through 20 in chapter 12, that's what it's all about. God was telling this generation to keep this day, to keep the Passover as a memorial to remind future generations about how, how to worship God properly. But Israel, they didn't do that. I mean, for generations to come, they at best half-heartedly worship God while, while worshiping other false gods. They rejected pro proper worship of God. Look, God created every one of us to worship, to worship something. It's, it's in us. That's the way he created us. Patrick talked about some of these things last week. You know, we're, we're either going to worship God or we're going to worship things in this world. And, and when we worship things in this world, we're, we're essentially rejecting God and his design and, and placing ourselves in his rightful place. I mean, kind of said another way, when we, when we do this, we make ourselves God. If we want to do that, Paul says as much in Romans chapter one, Paul says, from verses 18 to 23 in Romans chapter one, he says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their own unrighteousness suppress the truth for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him but they became futile in their thinking and then their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And what, what, what Paul is saying here is we have rejected God and worship of him. Instead, we worship created things instead of the one who created all things. And that's, that's what the Egyptians, that's what they were doing, right? I mean, as, we, as we've gone through these first nine plagues, we saw the object of these plagues, frogs, locusts, gnats, the sun, etc. I mean, we're, they were all connected to Egyptian gods. 
false gods, idols. The Egyptians worshipped these created things instead of worshipping the one who created them. Our passage today is it's focusing on the Egyptians, but you know, they're just they're just emblematic of the world. We all stand guilty of improper worship of God because of our sinfulness. So God, in his infinite grace and mercy, made a way for all of us to free us from, from, from the bondage of our sin and seek a right relationship with him. And then that leads us to, to our third point, point three, Jesus frees us to worship. Jesus frees us to worship. I'm going to say something that, that the world will not like. The world will decry this. The death of the firstborn in Egypt was not an overreach by God. It was not an overreach. Instead, it was merciful. God was well within his right to take every life in Egypt. But instead of taking every life, God made a way for salvation. Looking back at chapter 12, we see that each of the families of Israel were to, they were to take a lamb and sacrificing it, put in the blood of the animal on their doorposts of their homes. If the people in that home follow these instructions and the firstborn male in that house would live. Israel did that and, and Israel was saved by being under the blood of the lamb that was sacrificed. So God made a way of deliverance for Israel to free them from their physical bondage in Egypt. But this, this story though, that we, that we read today, this story, it's, it's bigger than Israel and it's, it's bigger than their deliverance from slavery in, in Egypt. It's, it's bigger than Israel. It's bigger than Egypt. It's bigger than you. And it's bigger than me. See, God had all of mankind in mind with this event of the Passover. God was, he was working for ultimate peace, for ultimate harmony, peace that can come only from a relationship with the Prince of Peace. Israel will, will leave Egypt. They'll take up residence in the land God promised them. Time and time, again, we, we see in the Old Testament, God reminding the Israelites to remind their children how he took them out of slavery in Egypt. This event would be remembered through the annual ordinance of the Passover meal. It was an ordinance that would be celebrated by generations to come. God just told them that, that they would do this in, in Exodus 12. It was an ordinance that, that continued and would one day culminate in a, in a truer, more perfect lamb being sacrificed. And we would see then while the first Passover would would mark Israel's freedom from captivity in, in Egypt. The Passover where the blood of Jesus would be spilled on the post of the cross would mark ultimate freedom. Not, not freedom from slavery of man, but freedom from the slavery of sin that is the ultimate plague brought onto every male, every female, regardless of age or ethnicity or socioeconomic class. So, so while Israel was saved by being under the blood of the lamb in the first Passover, we are saved by being under the blood of Jesus 
who was sacrificed for each and every one of us. If you're, if you're here in the room or you're, or you're watching online and, and you aren't a Christian, I, I beg you to listen to what I'm saying because if, if what I'm saying is true, then it, it has eternal ramifications for you. Jesus, the son of God went to the cross to sacrifice himself for you. He became the lamb who was sacrificed, who died to, to give you your freedom. Free yourself, free yourself from the burden of sin that plagues your life. Matthew eleven thirty, 30, Jesus says, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He wants you to take what is weighing you down, the sin that is weighing you down in your life and place it on him. Give your life to Jesus today. Don't, don't wait. Don't wait another minute. Don't wait another day. If you're here, you're, you're listening online and, and you do consider yourself a Christian, I'm not here to pat you on the back today. Scripture, scripture des- describes rewards that the believer may receive in heaven according to what they did while living on earth. It doesn't, it doesn't say anything about participation trophies. None of those in heaven. We're, we're living in a tough time in this country. There's a lot going on. So what are we doing? What are we doing? Are we, are we following the world? Or are we following Jesus to the cross? Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23, Jesus He's at the, uh, this is the Sermon on the Mount. It's kind of the back, back half of the Sermon on the Mount. And, and he's preaching and he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. These have to be the scariest words in the Bible for the Christian. To hear Jesus talk about a conversation with people on Judgment Day, when when they believe eternity in heaven is a lock. They've got it because in their minds, they've done all kinds of things in the name of Jesus. They've prophesied, cast out demons. They've, they've done many mighty works. And at the end of it all, Jesus says, I never knew you. I can't think of any words I'd rather hear less. But, but based on these, on these verses, it's going to happen. But to whom? Some? No. Jesus says many. There will be many people who will be shocked on the day of judgment. So the question that S.M. Lockridge, who, who's deceased, but he was the pastor of Calvary Baptist Church out in San Diego, California. This, this, uh, this question that, that he would ask a lot comes to my mind here. He would ask, do you know him? Do you know him? Are you walking with Jesus in relationship with him and obedience to him and devotion to him? and with faith in him. Is he everything we base our world view on? 
is, is Jesus and his word everything we base our, our thoughts and opinions on? Or are we more concerned about the world and, and what it says is important? We're prideful people. There's no doubt about it. We think just because we're, we're, we're fighting the world's causes, we're right. Instead, we need, to, we need to start comparing our lives through the lens of Scripture and what it says is right. Years ago, Marianne told me that um, her mentor reminded, reminded her that the standard is holiness. How true that is. The standard isn't the marginal Christian we compare ours to because that person does not exist. The standard is not oneness with the world. No, the standard is holiness. The standard is Jesus. In that same passage in, in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus describes a wide path and gate and contrasts that with a narrow path and gate. The wide path and gate are symbolic of a life of compromise with the world. Jesus says it's the easy path. If you never take a stand for truth and you always side with the world, you'll fit right in. It's an easy path. Samuel Say, who, who's a believer who grew up in Ghana, he runs a blog called Slow to Write. He says, we live in a time when compromise is more respected than courage. We live in a time where compromise is, is, is more respected than courage. So here's a question for us. Do we find ourselves disagreeing with people in the church more than we find ourselves disagreeing with, with people in the world? How often do we feel alone because of a biblical stance we take? If we can look around and we can see the world agreeing with us, if we never feel any hatred from the world, we're likely on that wide path. It's an easy path in this life, but Jesus says it leads to destruction. We, we tend to bristle at words like this because, because we want the world's approval. I get it. We all do. We all struggle with this. But this is what Jesus is talking about in John chapter 15. He, he says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would, would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Choosing, choosing life on the, on the narrow path with, with a narrow gate is, is hard. It's hard. We, we will be hated by the world. We will lose friends. We will lose popularity. We will be called names. But again, Jesus in John chapter 16, verse 33, he says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. The narrow path gives us eternal perspective. Worldly distraction is replaced with obedience to share the gospel. And that, that is the ultimate act of worship by a people who have been who have been set free by the blood of Jesus.
brothers and sisters, our, our time is short. Fix your eyes upon Jesus today. He is worthy of our worship. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, you are holy and mighty and good. And Lord, you are worthy of all of the worship and praise, Lord, that we can give. I pray, God, that if there is someone here, someone listening to the sound of my voice today, Lord, and, and who does not know you, Lord, I pray that today would be the day of salvation for them. I pray, God, Lord, that they would, that they would take the sin that is weighing them down, Lord, place it on you. Lord, you have provided freedom from that. Lord, you have provided freedom so that we can worship you. Today, Lord, I pray, God, that we would do that. In Jesus' holy name I pray. Amen.